This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Mark Hazy. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. How young is too young to start teaching kids about sex? Because it's a question that's blown up with the release of a sex education book in Australia this week. The reaction has been so full on that a major retailer's taken the book off the shelves to stop its staff being abused by customers. What is all this about? In a bit, we're going to be speaking to author Yumi Steins, who's written this book, so stay listening for that. Later, we're talking about dying trades, the old-fashioned skills that young Aussies are trying to keep alive. First, though. Hack. To come to this stadium and kind of have the realisation that we really have brought the Women's World Cup to Australia is a really proud moment for all of us. On Triple Jack. Yeah, we've got to start with the biggest sporting event of the year, getting started right here in Australia, the FIFA Women's World Cup. Thousands of fans from around the world heading to Australia and New Zealand for this massive global event. Are you going to be watching the Matildas as they kick off their campaign against the Republic of Ireland? The excitement's real. The fans are pumped. And one of those is hack reporter Miles Holbrook-Walk. He's usually in Darwin, but he's travelled to Sydney. He's actually going to be heading right around the country for the Women's World Cup over the next few weeks. Miles, how are you feeling? Buzzing. I am so buzzing right now. It's just like it's. we bought our tickets like a year ago. There was such a long run in. They moved the stadium. It was going to be played in the city in Sydney. Now it's going to be played out at Olympic Park because there was so much excitement and demand for tickets. And it's just like it's finally here. It's a little bit like it's one of those things where you got it so far ahead of it. You're like, oh, that'll be awesome when it comes around. Now it's here and like a little bit of goosebumps, to be honest, as well. And I imagine for like a football fan, if you're always seeing these big events held in other countries. It must be so special to see it in Australia. 100%. And the thing is, like, we're up watching at 3am and at 1am. <laughs> now like, it's in your time zone. Yeah, like, take that America, <laughs> take that Europe. You know what we suffer through. You know, the last Women's World Cup was in France in 2019. I remember getting up distinctly, getting up early to watch the Matildas get eliminated on penalties in a knockout match. So it was a pretty brutal experience because you've gotten up at 3am, right? And now you just, it's 430 you're devastated and you're like, oh, what now? <laughs> so we've got the Matildas. How are they placed in terms of this first match but also overall in the tournament? Like, are they favourites? They're probably not favourites to win the whole thing, but I'm an optimist to begin with. And it's like there's a few things going on. So tonight we've got Ireland, who it's their first ever World Cup for the women's team, and that's going to be an exciting thing for them, right? Their, their star player actually got uh, had to be hospitalised in a friendly game that just went totally out of control like a week before this match tonight. Wow. She has actually been confirmed fit to play, though, so they will have their, their kind of Sam Kerr equivalent player for Ireland. But it, Matilda's are expected to win and you know with the home crowd as well there's always this thing of does the 83,000 behind you cheering you on surely it lifts you up another level but I'm always like the pressure you know (laughs) (laughs) it's it's heaps it's heaps how significant do you reckon this is hosting something as big as a world cup for Australia Look, a lot of people have drawn the parable to hosting an Olympics and just a few numbers, like 1.4 million tickets already have been sold for this. This is huge numbers of people coming in. Uh, There was a local politician in New South Wales. He says they're expecting about 16,000 people to travel into the state just to watch games in this state alone. That, That would be similar to places like Queensland that have a lot of games, Victoria, South Australia, Perth as well. New Zealand, they've actually kicked off the World Cup right now as we speak, playing 
Norway. That game has sold out their biggest stadium in Auckland there. So it is huge. And like the logistics of it and everything, just the vibes, like when I go out there and the vibes around the ground and everyone will be like, this is the moment we're here for it. It's once every four years. It kind of ends up being like this kind of party-like atmosphere in a way, you know? And so it's it's massive. And it, I think they're tipping a few records, not just within women's football, but women's sport broadly across the country to be broken across this tournament. So, I mean, yeah, massive. Well, hey, your excitement is so infectious. There's a couple of things that Miles Holbrook well, gets excited about. Croc stories and World Cup stories. And so he's nailed both of those recently. Miles, you better get to the match. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Yeah, always a pleasure, Dave. And in the World Cup phrase, till it's done, let's go Matildas. <laughs> Yeah, Miles, one of the many excited fans heading to watch the Matildas play tonight. And remember, if you can't be at the game, there's heaps of places you can watch it with a crowd around the country or you can watch it on TV on Channel 7. You can listen to it on ABC Sport on the Listen app. Plenty of options. Hack. They know about sex. If they don't get it from material like this, they will absolutely be getting it from their friends or much more explicit content online. On Triple J. The conversation around sex education and consent has never been bigger in Australia. We talk about it a lot on Hack, how this stuff is taught in schools, the calls from experts for young people to be learning about it at a younger age. But it's not without controversy. And you might have seen something that's blown up in the news this week. Big W has removed a sex education book for young people from its shelves because it says... It's to protect staff because they've been facing abuse from angry customers. Some of the people against this book claim the illustrations in it border on pornography or that the themes are too much for children. The book is called Welcome to Sex. It's written by Dr Melissa Kang and Yumi Steins. Yumi Steins is actually with us now. Hey, Yumi. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Did you expect that this book would cause so much controversy? When we released it, we realised that it did have potential to get people exercised, particularly um, those who whose grip on what they think is the moral right. But yeah, this has been quite a ride. Why do you think it's blown up like this? I think, to be honest and to be cynical, some people who really are anti-trans and anti-LGBTQI+, plus as their kind of handle, as their reason for being, have taken this and and, and are kicking against it because it kind of interrupts what they're trying to do. All right, I just want to clear a few things up. Firstly, Mm. what age group is this book targeted at? This is a conversation that Dr Melissa Kang, myself and our publishers had over and over again. Where we saw the need was in the ages around 11 to 14 years old. But the thing with that is it's a nuanced answer to a tricky question in that kids can be really sophisticated and really worldly and be sort of half across this stuff already and others can be so sweet and innocent and you know are still writing letters to Santa Claus at the same age so you really have to gauge the child which hopefully the parent is in the right position to do to see whether they're you know ready for this kind of information i mean because people are bringing up comments that you've made about a mature eight-year-old being able to read this book and there's outrage about that from some sections of the community how do you respond Mm. to that um i don't know i mean some people just want to get outraged right but i've brought up 
four children quite successfully, if I do say so myself. I do care about what they read and I can understand parents getting concerned. I totally get that because I'm a concerned parent myself, but I also know my kids really well. I know what they're interested in and I see when they pick up a book and flick through it, I see what sticks and I see what completely passes them by and frankly, a lot of kids just aren't interested in sex. So you could put the most graphic thing in front of them and not that I would, but they are not even going to like click at what they're seeing. It's going to be completely meaningless to them. So what you'll see as an educator, but also as a parent is that as kids grow older, so grows their curiosity. And it's really, really good if you've got some answers when they ask you tricky questions. The research that we've done, and we've done tons, there's there's an army of professors, doctors, frontline workers, sex, sexual health educators, sexologists behind this book who've all fact-checked it. They'll all say that educating kids about sex will not make them have sex younger. And just to be clear, like you have no intention of seeing this book passed around toddlers at preschool. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't know what it was, but no, of course not, no. So what kind of stuff are you talking about in the book? What are the themes? What are the issues that are being brought up? Mm. So the Welcome to Sex book was developed in response to genuine questions that were asked by adolescents to Dolly Doctor for over 20 years. So Dr. Melissa Kang wasn't the only Dolly Doctor, but she was the longest serving and she did it for 23 years. And she kept all the letters and they're absolutely wonderful. And some are like, how do you flirt? Some are, I've got feelings for my best friend. Others are, you know, my boyfriend wants to have sex, but I'm scared. What do I do? So there's all kinds of questions that we seek to answer. Most of them are that kind of thing, like how how do I navigate this situation? How do I talk to my mum? What is, what is the reason I can't get a date? What's ghosting? You know, all kinds of things. Um, but there are some that just answer the question, like how do I put on a condom? What is scissoring? Because what you find, and this is what's so um, delightfully entertaining about talking to sex educators, is how wrong kids get it. What we found in our research, Dave, is that if you, and this is fairly recent research, is that kids 14, uh, um, at 14 years of age, half of Australian kids have seen explicit pornography. So I think you kind of want to get the jump on what sex is before they start getting indoctrinated into something that's actually pretty bruising spiritually. And I think, you know, if you start practicing what you see in porn, you're not going to have a very healthy or fulfilling sex life. So I totally get the the kind of more moderate parents having fear around it. Interestingly, they're the exact people that I feel I relate to because I'm a pretty, you know, average person. And the thing that the research shows is that, first of all, parents really do feel awkward talking to their kids about sex. You come from a different country or a different culture or religion and you've inherited shame. You, you might have inherited shame no matter where you've come from because your parents are awkward. You're, you, you know, the grandparent generation is very, very rooted in shame around sex and, and blushing and cringing and just saying, oh, can you just go and ask, ask your mother or something? So that's one side of the coin. The other side, though, is that scientifically, for whatever reason, kids also hate talking to their parents about sex. There's a massive cringe factor that's across all cultures where at, at around 12 to 14, kids are like, no, I cannot. I cannot, mum, put that down. Don't talk to me about sex. I'd rather die than hear you talk about the day that you first had sex or something like that. 
But what kids really need is to have a trusted adult that they can talk to about this stuff. So what, I mean, my fantasy is that the book fills that gap is that if your parent is cringing and the child is cringing and, and mortified and embarrassed, they can consult a third authority and say, well, look, this is what they say about this question that you've got about tongue kissing or what is sexting. You've got something that's finite, so it's not the, the untethered infiniteness of the internet. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with writer Yumi Steins about a sex education book she's written for kids that's caused a bit of drama this week. You might have seen it in the news. On the text line, someone says, I'm a child and family therapist. We say eight-year-old is too late to begin talking about sex because kids can access porn so easily. Another person wish a book like this had been around when I was a kid. I saw there's a section on asexuality, and if I'd seen that... I'd known that I wouldn't have thought I was broken for years. But someone else says, you can't be serious. I think this is over the top and inappropriate. I didn't have a book like that and I did fine. That was from Ben. Another person says, I do think it's inappropriate and over-sexualisation of kids. Yumi Steins, what do you think of Big W taking this book off the shelves? Like, are you upset by that? No, not at all. I respect their decision. I think you've got to keep your staff safe and I'm really pleased that they do value their staff enough to do that. They're still selling the book online and from what I've been told, it's selling like gangbusters right now for BW. Um, and I, I just I just can't get over the idea that people who think they're in the moral right, that they're, they're righteous and good, are attacking staff that work in retail. These 14-year-olds getting paid minimum wage. It's just atrocious to me. So I support whatever anybody does to keep their work, their workplaces safe. Yumi, what do you think all this says about where we're at in Australia when it comes to sex education and consent and talking about those things with young people? I think it's an exciting time, Dave, because people are excited to have these conversations. They're more open than they ever were to have a conversation. I think older generations that could have once been called stuck in the mud are are kind of going, oh, maybe I need to open up my thinking around this stuff. My only fear is that the so-called controversy it's really not that big of a thing. It's just a couple of extremists and that's how they should be labelled because that's what they are. It's a couple of extremists whipping up fear among regular people. So the so-called controversy, I don't think it's a thing. I think that parents are really open to having conversations with their kids and they need tools to help them do it because none of us are perfect. Um And the time is right. I was going to say, there's obviously some criticism that's being reported heavily at the moment. What about the support? Are you guys getting a heap of support as well? Yeah, heaps. I mean, it's annoying to me because there's a whole team behind this book, but it's me that gets all the abuse, death threats and criticism. I'm like, hey, what about the other guys? They're all here as well. Has it really been that serious though, in terms of the kind of abuse and stuff you're copying now? Oh, yeah. I'll send you screenshots if you want. It's really foul and it really stresses me out. I don't like it at all. And I'm not flipping about it because when people in the public eye are murdered by lunatics, it's usually preceded by a bunch of threats. So I don't take this lightly at all. But the the answer to your question about the positives is that, yeah, the, I mean, the, the support has been really wonderful. What I've also seen that I don't think I've seen in previous media pylons that I've been part of is sector support. So people who work in sexual abuse prevention, professors of sexual health, doctors, nurses, body educators have all stepped up and said, this book is really good. People shutting it down are trying to censor 
good information that will help kids. So I feel really, really backed, as well as that the book's become a bestseller overnight. Well, hey, that's kind of what all authors are after, surely. (laughs) It's definitely got people talking. Writer, presenter, Yumi Steins, appreciate you coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having a chat. Thanks a lot, Dave. And on text line, someone says, if you don't like it, don't buy it. Everyone has different values. Someone else says, kids have unprecedented access to pornographic material on the internet these days. I first saw this stuff age seven, thanks to my older brother. The book, Where Did I Come From, was first published in the 1970s, for context. Sex education is really important, in my opinion. But then someone else saying, I don't think eight-year-olds need to be learning about this stuff. I'm not a fan of this book. So some mixed opinions on the text line. Hack. When you first start, you can sit there and stitch for a month and still not be great at it, but everything just takes practice. On Triple Jack. Hey, were you a horse person growing up? You know, the kinds. Everyone knew someone who had the posters, pretended to be a horse in the playground. Maybe you were a fan of the Saddle Club TV show. Well, get ready to meet the new Saddle Club in 2023, or kind of, a group of young women who are actually making saddles, (laughs) horse riding gear. They're making it from scratch. This is an old-fashioned skill, but as you're about to hear, it's drawing in younger people who are taking an interest in learning. And in a bit, we're going to speak to another young Aussie who's learned a forgotten trade from the olden days. It's so interesting. But first, Ali Felton-Taylor finds out more about the women who are taking the reins literally with this really unique skill. I love making things from scratch, I always have. Before I started here, I used to sew and I was always making things with my hands, scrapbooking and things. So making something as special as the things that I get to work on here is awesome. I, yeah, love it. Here at Kent's Saddlery in the southern Queensland downtown of Stanthorpe, Erin is one of six young women hard at work. They're all absolutely loving the job, traditionally considered men's work. I feel like there's always a way around it. Like, I've been told that I'm not strong enough to do some things, but if you just think about it for a little while, you'll sometimes figure out a different way to do it. So I'm making all the little pieces and the finer details that then become the saddle. I've never worked with anything quite like leather. It's kind of soft but tough and it wears pretty well. I'm doing wire cutter pouches, plier pouches. I've been making some bags, trying to make girths as well all at once. (laughs) Meanwhile, Anna has been making bridles. It's a headpiece for horses when they're being ridden. Webbing ones usually take me like a day to make about 10 and leather ones probably a day to make about six. Leather work, particularly saddlery, has been a male-dominated trade. So it's actually really interesting that, as you can hear, I had no troubles finding heaps of women at this saddlery. In fact, it's something more and more young women are getting into. Many work at saddleries like this one, while also studying at TAFE to get a Cert 3. Here's Shari, who's in a more senior role here. I think they're just looking for a unique work opportunity to get out and use their hands. A lot of them are horsey girls, love horses, so they're drawn to this industry in that way. But leather products aren't for everyone. And I asked Shari how she felt about using it in her work. And for it to be able to be used 
and turned into, again, products that are used daily for the entirety of somebody's life sometimes is well worth it. I think that, yeah, they really are passionate about, the, again, the quality of the gear, being able to make something from scratch with your hands um, and seeing people being able to use it daily, especially the gear that goes out on the stations. It's really being worked really hard and it's, you know, somebody's tool and it's their best mate that they're using all day, every day, and to be a part of creating something of that quality, they really love it. Women also make up half of the staff at another workplace, nearly 150 k's due north. Yeah, I got sick in 2019. Uh, I had to quit my job and teach myself how to walk again. Meet Kelsey, who works in Toowoomba. While I was bedridden, I got bored, so I started stitching um, and lacing and started making some bags and then it eventuated from there. And I eventually was like, I'll put two together and do horses and my leather work and then wanted to get into saddlery and finally landed the position here um, and it's been the best move ever. I think leather work in general, it's good to see more women doing it. Kelsey, take me through a day um, back in the workshop here. What, what do you do? I just finished doing stirrup leathers, just onto another task, doing two-way pouches at the moment, and then, yeah, the list is never-ending. Back in Stanford, Maddie also has a pretty hectic to-do list. So I've just made over 100 belts in the last week that everyone's been stitching. Lots of young women in this workplace. You've been here for two years and you've probably seen the number of young women growing. Is Do you enjoy that? Is that special? Yeah, yeah, I think having them there is just helps you out as a woman and helps people coming into it, like tours and everyone. They see women in there and they love it. Maddie says it's so nice to contribute something like this in a world dominated by fast fashion. When people think it's manufactory, for us it's handmade because we try and do the best I can and it is quality products that we sit here and look at every single detail. We sit here and we know what's wrong with it, we know how to fix it. Being a part of it is pretty amazing, like we're just trying to make products that last as long as we last. And Kelsey reckons this is an industry she could be involved in for the rest of her life. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'll ever change. When I first started Saddlery, I never realised how much work is involved in actual the making of a saddle, how it can go from just a timber tree to a completed saddle. Like, it's the process is quite phenomenal. Triple J. Ali Felton Taylor with that story. It's so interesting. I'm loving hearing from people on the text line about the forgotten trades or skills that they have. Someone says, I do wrought iron for a living. It's a dying trade. We're one of the only people in Victoria to still do it the old school way. And I really do hope more young people start doing trades again and bring craftsmanship back to Australia. Another person says, I was a cobbler working for a watch and shoe repair place. I was the only chick in the area. I was in my early 20s. There were heaps of things that were hard to do, but I always found a way and heaps of people would request my shoe repairs because I was really neat and I had a high standard. Hey, good to hear. I'm interested if you have a job like this that nobody else is doing these days, what is it? How'd you get into it? Andrew Wirtz is one of those people. He's with us from Tumut in New South Wales, and Andrew's a third-generation broom maker. <laughs> you heard me. He makes old-fashioned brooms. Let's find out a bit more. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, David. How long have your family been involved in making brooms? 
Uh, my grandfather started at the Chimit Broom Factory in 1946 as an apprentice. So it's been 77 years wow. since then. Wow. And what, can you explain what, what kind of process it is? Like how long does it take to make a broom and what are you making? Everything. Yeah, so you start with, obviously, the, the handle. We get our handles from uh, Melbourne. Sand them, paint them. Uh, you get the millet and uh, you have to grade all of the millet to different stages uh, for the different layers of the broom and then you have to put the broom together on a broom winder which is all drawn out under wire so the wire holds all the millet together once that's done you have to uh, sew the broom up that's how you hold it all together and uh, that's what makes the the broom sweep well if it's sewn well Um, as it's sewn shows a shell it sweep and once that's been sewn up depending on how big the broom is it'll be either a six tie or seven tie that's the rows of strings the strings are trimmed off and the ends trimmed and then it's put out the sun to dry so that's the whole whole process and andrew when did you start learning how to make brooms uh so uh, my first broom i made when i was about 15 it was pretty terrible <laughs> from memory i think mum still got it somewhere in the cupboard but uh yeah i actually picked up the trade when i moved back from melbourne end of 2019 i started learning how to make brooms properly yeah i've been doing that for about three and a half years now do you guys do it like a really traditional way? Are there many other places that do it as traditional as you do? So we're the last of the original factories. Back in the day, there was 14 broom factories in Australia. We're all, all over Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, and different different uh, cities and towns. Uh, there's still one other broom factory in Tumut. There is another guy in uh, Morpeth as well. He's probably in his, in his 80s now. And uh, that was another place they grew millet just outside of Newcastle there in the Hunter Valley. That's about all I know of. Dad probably knows a couple of other people that might still have a bit of knowledge of the trade. But yeah, most of it's been lost. We're the, pretty much the last last of, a, of an era. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You must feel pretty special. Is it also a bit stressful? Like, do you think, oh, who am I going to teach? Who am I going to pass this skill on to? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, I, I sort of grew up with broom so it's always been it's always been something I've been around so I never thought too much about it when I was younger but I guess now that I'm a bit older and I understand you know um, especially working at the factory and the number of people that come in and 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 say you know oh my mother had a broom when I was I was a kid and she used to pull out the millet and test the cake or you know I remember sweeping these in the wool sheds you know 40 or 50 years ago it's pretty amazing to hear those stories and so I think that that tradition is what I was uh, wanted to keep going I actually am passing that along to uh, a couple of people. I've got a friend of mine who's actually working here a couple of days a week and uh, also I've got a young... He's, he's only 15, but he's coming down after school and, and helping around the factory, so it's good to see the younger generation are interested in uh, in the process too. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, what do you like about that kind of work? Why do you like making brooms? Just the satisfaction that you know you're making a good quality product that's going to last... And it's the people that, you know, that come in and say, you know, I've had my broom for 20 years and, you know, uh, it's just about due for another one. They've worn it, worn it down to the strings, you know, they've, uh, and they've, it's looked after them and, and they've looked after the broom and something making something that lasts, you know, it's something that isn't seen a lot these days. And I think people are really starting to um, be drawn to that again. So, yeah, that's, that's why I like making brooms. Are people pretty surprised when they hear what you do? If you meet new people or other young people around and you tell them, are they like, oh, what the hell? 
Yeah, yeah. It's often a, it's a funny it's a funny line when you when people ask you, oh, what do you do for work, and you say, oh, I'm a broommaker. That you're like, oh, what? <laughs> They're a bit shocked, I suppose, but uh, it's not something you hear every day. Why do you think it's important that young people in general you take up these rare skills and uh, and trades and, and continue to learn them? Yeah, I think it's important, you know, obviously carrying on the tradition and, and the legacy of, of uh, a bit of history and especially, you know, these lost trades in Australia. I know you were mentioning um, a couple of long, young ladies who were making saddles, horse saddles, you know, that that kind of knowledge. It's important that young people pick these skills up and, and learn them because uh, otherwise they do get lost. You know, I know my father's been in it for 40 years and my grandfather was in it for for 50 years making brooms and um, I've only been here for three and a half but yeah I think it's important that I keep at least the knowledge and the tradition going. Well hey Andrew you are the first broom maker we've ever spoken to on Hack, uh, hopefully not the last right? Andrew Wirtz from Trimit New South Wales, thanks for joining us and thanks for telling us about what you do. Thanks for having me David, cheers. Yeah and a lot of people on the text line who know about Andrew, know about the brooms. They say, yeah, they're good quality brooms, those ones from Tumut. Someone else says, I'm an upholsterer. I make old furniture new. That's what I do. Another person, humans are meant to create and build. Get out there. Put your hands to work. You're going to feel fantastic. And Karina from Nunnawal Country says, making things with my hands is why I wanted to be a jeweller when I was 13. I thought it was one of the few trades that I might be able to do as a woman. Well, hey, we're learning. Women are getting into all kinds of uh, areas that were traditionally dominated by men, including saddle making. Still getting a lot of messages through on the sex education book. We had a chat with writer Yumi Steins a bit earlier. Someone says, I'm a child protection social worker and work with children who've been sexually harmed. Often children with no education around sex or consent do not understand when they are being sexually harmed. Books like this are so needed. I think ages eight plus should be reading truthful scientific material that's age appropriate. Another person says, I'm a primary school teacher. We have kids in year four viewing and talking about porn. The kids know and they're accessing the information on their own. Let's give them reliable information and sources. Another person says, no, no way this is suitable for kids. Someone else's opinion there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.